Hello, everybody. Hello, my peeps. My peeps in follower land. How's everything going? I, I was thinking about how we could uh, how we could refer to one another here. So I thought guys is too generic because some people are girls. And uh, I thought friends, I don't know. That's like, it just seems old school. So I'm going to go with peeps, which is short for people, which I, I think is pretty gangster. I think it's pretty cool. So so for now, it'll be hi, peeps. Hello, my peeps. Hi, my pe- it comes, it's because I come from Benoni. Right, so shout out to the Benoni people, little little gangsterness coming through there from uh, out in the Benizel. So, peeps, uh, we have been in the series called "A Death in the Family" and other good news, and and it's, I think it's been pretty cool. Uh, if you are catching up with us and where we've been, we've been looking at uh, basically preparing our hearts. So, the kind of analogy that I used was to say, imagine the gospel. Is is like uh, imagine the gospel is uh, this huge ocean of water behind a dam wall. Uh, what we've been doing in the past three weeks is creating streams or riverbeds, uh, preparing capacity, so that when we open the gates of that dam wall, whatever flows out uh, has a greater chance of actually having effect on our lives. And the three kind of things we looked at was this idea that God, goodness is godness. Um, the, that the, there's the power of is, there's a presence reality of this kingdom, and and so this is human. And the, the kind of big ideas around that were we can't even begin to talk about the gospel and letting, unless we're willing to submit to the godness of God, which is a difficult thing increasingly in our society. Secondly, we can't uh, really enter into the reality of the gospel if we are always expecting it to be uh, somewhere else for someone else uh, in some other time, instead of recognizing that the kingdom is actually at hand, this reality of God is actually present. And then the third idea was to say that this gospel is, is not only going to have implication for me and my private little spirituality, the gospel uh, necessarily pulls me into a much bigger story called humanity. And if I want to enter into the fullness of what the gospel is, I have to be willing to leave the shores of my own selfishness and venture out into the ocean of self-giving sacrifice, a bigger story than just me. So we've kind of been preparing ourselves for this gospel idea, and this week we get to talk about what the gospel is. Now let me say initially, uh, I had I had named this ser- this episode in the series, The Day That Death Died. And then I started to uh, think into and prepare th- this idea, and I realized that even that title was the product of exactly what I'm trying to move away from when we understand the gospel. And so I'd actually been a victim of the worldview that I'm going to talk about today when it comes to the gospel. Um, and so I've renamed it. It's no longer called The Day That Death Died. It's now called Jesus Is the Gospel. And it'll become evident why that is as we go on. So, I hope you're ready. Buckle up. It's going to be good uh, just to say that this this is going to... you got to view this today very much as the beginning of a thought rather than the closing of a thought. If you are expecting um, a conclusion here, 
you're going to be disappointed because, if anything, the gospel, um, and the way we'll unpack it now, the gospel is a point of inspiration. Uh, it is a consummation, but it's also an inspiration. It's, it is the tying up of one story and then um, explosively the beginning of another story. And so if you want to enter into what the gospel is, you have to be prepared uh, that on hearing it, you haven't arrived. You've actually begun. There's a whole new way uh, to understand what this means. Who is Jesus? What is he doing? And what does it mean to follow him in the world today? My name is Matt Lewis. This is the Follower Podcast, and everyone is invited to the conversation. To get into it, I want to talk about food envy. That's right, food envy. So, uh, I'm convinced that actually everybody experiences food envy at least once. Food envy is that moment when you go out for dinner or lunch or breakfast, whatever, you go out for a meal with your friends, yes? You sit down at the table and you open up the menu. Now, when you open up the menu, if you're like me, you are overwhelmed by the excess of choice. I actually think that the excess of choice is the mother of anxiety, okay? So there's just choice there. And everything on that menu looks phenomenal. So you spend so much more time than is necessary pouring over this menu trying to get to uh, what you would consider the best food for the least money. At least that's, I'm cheap like that. I'm okay. I'm okay to admit that, right? I want the best food. And and typically, as a dude, I've, I've often wanted the most food for the least money, right? So I'm looking at the menu. I kind of read some of the descriptions, but mostly I'm looking at pictures. And then eventually, and this is generally because by this time, the waiter is standing next to me, staring at me with a kind of quiet judgment. Eventually, I end up ordering my food and not without uh, some kind of contention inside of me because I'm like, wow, this thing, this thing, if I go with this, then I get the burger and the things. But if I go with this, then I get the extra avo and it just, it all gets very complicated and anxiety, right? Creating. Um. But I'm, when I order that food, I'm mostly doing it out of pressure because it's my turn to order now and I don't want to hold the whole table up because I can't make a decision about food, never mind life, yeah? And then uh, when I order it, I'm only typically half convinced that, that this is actually what I want. But I'm hopeful, right? So I hold out hope. I've got a positive outlook on this whole thing. Eventually, uh, the food comes. And as my meal gets placed in front of me, uh, I honestly find myself uh, disappointed in the moment. This is this is the experience of food envy. And why I'm disappointed is because the meal that was described on the menu, the meal that I saw in the picture, is very definitely not the meal that is in front of me. I mean, it has some kind of resemblance to the picture, but at best, this is like a miniature version of what was going on on the menu. And so I look down at this thing and I'm just like, ah, man, you know, when you get that sinking feeling and you're just like, this is not really what I wanted. Um, and then to make matters worse, you look around at the food of the other people at the table and they all seem to have made far better life choices when it comes to their lunch or their dinner or their breakfast or whatever it is. And, and typically, the, it'll be like the person sitting next to you or the person sitting directly opposite you or even somebody else at another table. Have you ever had that moment where you're staring at a complete stranger's food, just like, like just wishing that that meal was your meal? And these people, uh, they seem to have ordered exactly what you didn't know you wanted but now wish that you had. 
right? This is food envy. But you don't complain. You just take a deep breath. You get stuck into your food uh, that you wish you hadn't ordered. Um, and you try pretty hard not to stare at the other person who is eating the food you wish you had ordered. Anybody relate? Anybody relate? This is, this is food envy. And food envy is a real thing. Um, it's so real, in fact, that I think if you, if you think about food envy and that experience there, I think this gives us an insight into how many people experience the gospel. Yeah? Now, why? Because for so many people, their first encounter with uh, the gospel, at least what they are told the gospel is, it's a lot like that menu. Okay? It's a menu at a restaurant. And it's well packaged, this gospel, and it's actually designed to provoke the appetite of their particular cultural preference at any time. And also it's designed to compete with all the other narratives that are on offer. Okay, so it, it, the gospel that many people initially encounter, if they're new to this idea, um, and and in some ways the gospel that people are born into and enculturated into, it's a it's a marketing strategy, in a lot of ways. Okay, and, and this is common enough that we can actually observe it as a pattern when we look around at so much of uh, contemporary sort of Christian culture in the, at the moment, where you see. Um, the, the tone of the society at the time, now whether that tone is consumerism, hedonism, materialism, nationalism, and any of, of the isms, the tone of that society is actually mirrored by the Christianity in that society. And I get it uh, in the sense that a lot of the time this mirroring, it's motivated in some cases and in many cases by a, a desire to be relevant and also a desire to leverage cultural contact points for the sake of the gospel. And, and this motivation is something I actually partially agree with. I don't think we can, I don't think we have the luxury of just burying our head in the sands and becoming irrelevant to the culture. Um, and I think we actually find many examples of this kind of contextualization all over the Bible. However, my concern is, is when this contextualization moves to a degree that relevance and contextualization become the goal instead of the vehicle. What happens when, when this takes place is that the gospel ends up offering the same goods as its secular counterparts, but with a Jesus veneer. So if capitalism offers riches, then Jesus ends up offering riches. If medicine claims to heal all the sickness, then Jesus offers an improvement on that healing. If meditation offers a peaceful disposition, then Jesus is all of a sudden a Zen master who, who offers us some kind of uh, out-of-body peace, right? If pop psychology tells us that the greatest good is self-discovery and self-expression, uh, then that becomes the mantra of Jesus as well. In these instances, the gospel ends up becoming faddish, a marketing strategy, and sadly, it often works, at least for the short term, right? When the gospel enters into the space, it does work in filling buildings, in getting people uh, to order the Jesus they see on the menu, because that Jesus is custom fit to their preference, Right, It works in the same way that an unlimited amount of sweets works in bringing children to a candy store. But just like those sweets, what works isn't always what's good. And so when we're having conversations as uh, Christian people or people who are thinking about God, we can't only be asking the question, well, what works? We have to be asking the question, what is good? 
How many thousands of people have responded to a Jesus that has been tailor-made to pander to their ultimately misdirected addictions? How many people, having ordered the kind of Jesus that they saw on the menu with his two-for-one promise of fulfilling all their dreams and removing all their pain while asking for nothing in return, have actually ended up regretting their choice when the real Jesus was set before them? How many people on seeing the real Jesus who suddenly calls them to a cost they weren't willing to pay and challenges the misdirected addictions that they thought he would facilitate get a kind of ideology envy, right? A kind of faith envy, a spirit in. So they are not satisfied with the Jesus who has been set before them and they're looking around the table at all the other ideas that are on offer wishing they had those. How many people lost faith in Jesus because their faith was never in him to begin with. And when we think about these things, we start to realize just how important it is that we seek to communicate and understand the gospel message of Christianity as accurately as we possibly can. Now, now will we get this 100% right? I, no, right? Every Christian is guilty of a certain amount of heresy, and, and there is no theology that's perfect aside from Jesus himself. We have to accept that, okay? Um, but this does not excuse a careless position that's willing to label anything as gospel, provided it, it accomplishes um, our, our desired ends. When we do this, what we see is an increasingly compromised church in Christianity, um, and it, it, this church, it ultimately becomes systematically deconstructed precisely because it's animated by this compromised gospel message. So the foundational narrative that's informing this group of people, if that is compromised to this degree, then that group of people will be compromised as well. So this leads us to ask then, okay, if, if it's so important that we make sure that we get as close to the authentic as we can, what is the authentic? What, what is the gospel? Or to put it another way, what is the plumb line against which our conceptions of the gospel must be measured? Now, it might come as some surprise to, to people that to answer that question is actually not a simple task. Why do I say that's a surprise? Because there's many people, many worldviews, many perspectives of Christianity who would say that the gospel is a simple thing. It's a simple task. In fact, uh, there's many people who would say that it's, uh, you could just summarize it down. But I, I don't believe that. I actually think that answering the question of what the gospel is requires another question, which is, uh, how much time do you have? <laughs> how much time do you have? Right? How, how serious are you about this? How deep do you want to go? Because contrary to popular beliefs, any appropriate exploration of the gospel takes time. Um, and, that's, and, and it takes time just to discuss it conceptually, never mind apply it practically. We've said that the gospel is good news, yes? And we've said that it carries redemptive potential for all humanity, both now and into eternity. But why is it that? I would say that the reason the gospel is so good and so powerful is because of the person who stands at the center of its narrative. And that person is not us. That alone is a controversial idea, 
particularly for those of us who understand the gospel, as a list of statements that are primarily concerned with us, our sin, and our need for a savior, summarized onto a piece of paper or a list of memory verses, or handed out on some kind of street corner. From this perspective, and unfortunately it is often the popular perspective, the word gospel and the word salvation, as understood through the lens of the doctrine of justification, these are synonymous terms, and that right there is precisely the problem. If you understand gospel as salvation, then yes, you can summarize it. But I am saying that to understand that in a synonymous way, that's the issue. Why? Because uh, it's not because I don't believe in, in the idea of sin. It's not because I don't think we need saving or, or that Jesus is even that savior. Absolutely not. In fact, I agree with N.T. Wright, who points out that there's nothing wrong with what people believe um, about many of these ideas. They're often not always, but they are often good and right things to believe. The problem is when we label these things the gospel. Because when we do this, we take what is only a part of the story and we make it the whole story. And as a result, our theologies and our practices, um, are they end up becoming weak and profoundly susceptible to manipulation. Does the gospel um, include the issues of sin, saving, uh, our need to be saved from that sin? Absolutely. But they, those things are not the sum total of its narrative. If we take a part, salvation, the doctrine of justification, and teach it as the whole, well, then we lose the whole in the process. If, however, we teach the whole, we get the part thrown in. Now, for those of you who are not tracking, <laughs> uh, let, me, let me give you an example, okay? Um, let's say you go to watch a movie. Now, let's say the movie is Avengers, right? Avengers Endgame. No, 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 because none of us have seen Avengers Endgame, so we won't do any of that yet. Avengers Infinity War, okay? So you've gone to watch Avengers Infinity War, and if you haven't, just welcome to the world, okay? You are late for the movie, number one, no, before we get there. You, you have no idea about the Marvel Universe, okay? Going into this movie, you're going in cold. You have no idea about any of the characters. You haven't watched any of the other Marvel movies. You haven't watched any of the other Avengers movies. You don't know who Iron Man is, Thor is. You don't know about any of these people. So that's your first uh, point of blindness. Secondly, you you come into the movie, uh, but you're late for the movie. And so as you walk in, you come right into the scene where Thanos is about to click his fingers, right? And you see that moment. He clicks. Okay. And then you're so overwhelmed by the power of what you're seeing, and then you have to go. So you leave right after that scene. Okay. So so now, the scene where Thanos clicks the fingers. It's a, it's a powerful scene. It's a crux scene. Arguably, it's maybe one of the most important scenes in that whole movie, maybe even the whole uh, Avengers series. We don't know. Okay, So are we, are we questioning the validity of that scene itself? We're not. But what we're saying is, if you don't understand everything that led up to that scene or everything that led from that scene, you are likely to misinterpret the scene itself. Regardless of how sincere your experience or how significant the particular scene may be, you would not be able to really understand what had just happened, what you had just watched, without any other contextual understanding of where that scene fits, what led up to it, what results from it, and who the characters are in the overall story. Even worse than this, you... Unless, unless you could gain knowledge of that broader narrative, right? So unless someone was able to fill you in on those pieces, what, what would happen is that you would leave 
And you may even develop a completely subjective understanding of that scene itself. Worse than that, you may even convince other people who haven't seen the movie to believe your version of the movie. You might even establish an Avengers church or create a whole bunch of Avengers disciples uh, that are all built around assumptions of what happened before and after that particular scene, which are almost certainly not aligned with the reality of the situation itself. More than that, you may become so devoted to your understanding of that scene in the absence of a broader context that even if you do eventually get exposed to the broader Marvel story, you will interpret that story through the lens of the narrative you have created by just understanding the one scene. Now, my argument and what I'm trying to help us understand is this is what happens with the gospel. So the miracle of salvation, what happens on the cross, uh, sin, salvation, belief, all these things are wonderful, but they are a scene in a movie that is so expansive it is near impossible to fully comprehend. Yeah. Uh, is it a very important scene, this issue of salvation? Absolutely. Is it a beautiful scene? Yes. But is it just a scene? Yes. And the movie is the gospel. And even the movie, the gospel, is in a series of a broader narrative, right? So if we really want to understand what the gospel is, we have to move away from simplistic, reducible, pragmatic uh, ways of approaching it. The gospel is nuanced, it's complex, it's multidimensional. It cannot be truly summarized into a sales pitch because the point of the gospel is not a transaction. The point of the gospel is interaction and engagement. It comes pre-packed with the necessity of ongoing journey. What some people would call discipleship or sanctification. Why do I say this? Because in the end, the end point of the gospel, the goal of the gospel is reason, it's telos, it's, it's everything that it is moving toward is a person, and that person is Jesus. The gospel is not first and foremost a declaration of our brokenness. It is first and foremost a declaration of His wholeness. It is not first and foremost about our lack but about his sufficiency. It's not about what we gain or lose, but about who he is and indeed who he is not. The gospel is not about us. The gospel is about him. So any kind of gospel understanding that starts with you and your sin, uh, you and your journey to hell, and therefore you and your savior, it's just a wrong starting point for the gospel. Are those things necessarily true or untrue? You know, we, that's another discussion to have. But are those things the gospel? They're not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. And, and why do we struggle with this? I know I struggle with this because I've been conditioned to view the gospel primarily as a story about my sin and my salvation, right? After all, what kind of gospel preaching doesn't lead to these things in their conclusion? And again, I'm not saying that any of these things are wrong. I'm just saying that they are products of the gospel. They're examples of a good news that comes from the good news. They're products of gospel, but not the gospel itself. And while some might think this is an issue of semantics, I am convinced that this is, is a necessary differentiation um, between what the gospel is and the results of the gospel um, in our communities. Why do I think this is so important? 
Because if we are only interested in Jesus for what he can do for us, rather than for who he is, we are guilty of a subtle and often imperceptible kind of idolatry that sets itself up in opposition to true gospel living. If the gospel we respond to is primary, primarily concerned with us, our sin, and our Savior, then we subtly reinforce a preoccupation with self and a utilitarian understanding of God as a means to some other end rather than God as an end in himself. I'm convinced that in our culture, these fires of self-indulgence and uh, self-absorption, these fires already burn brightly and we don't actually need to pour any more fuel onto them. On the other hand, when we hold to the ancient apostolic tradition observed first in 1 Corinthians 15 and then echoed out throughout the New Testament, uh, as well as later on in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, uh, what, what happens is we keep Jesus and who he is, specifically if we want to get into it, as the fulfillment of Israel's messianic expectation at the center of our gospel declaration. And Jesus, not heaven or hell, takes center stage. And when Jesus takes center stage, those hearts that respond to this powerful declaration of the beauty and power and significance of his person, not just for them, but for the whole of creation, uh, rather than only for their personal eternal security, uh, that is a true kind of saving. That postures the heart uh, to wonderfully receive all that Christ desires to lead people into. Now, does this position, this understanding of the gospel, lend itself to confusion? Possibly. Will it result in less measurable results such as salvations on a Sunday morning or those uh, who want to clearly and definitively understand uh, who is in as opposed to those who are out? Maybe. However, is that kind of complexity the true and inevitable indicator of authentic relationship as opposed to clean-cut compartmentalized ideologies without a life of their own? I believe it is. See, the gospel, being Jesus, who is a person, is inherently relational and therefore unavoidably messy. It is as Rachel Held Evans says, uh, much has been said in recent years about the value of rendering the gospel into a single digestible aphorism. D.L. Moody claimed that he could fit it uh, onto a coin. I was once challenged to sum it up in a tweet, but it strikes me as fruitless to try and turn the gospel into a statement when God so clearly gave us a story, or more precisely, a person. It's also what Flannery O'Connor says, who, by the, way, by the way, I found out this week is a lady, not a man. So Flannery, if you're listening to this, sorry, I thought you were a dude, but I'm glad you're a chick. That's cool. Uh, so Flannery says this, she says, a, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way. And it takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. You, you tell a story because a statement would be inadequate. When anybody asks what a story is about, the only proper thing to do is to read the story. So when someone asks, what is the gospel? The best response is, let me tell you a story. 
Now, you might start with Abraham, Isaiah, or Luke. You might start with the Samaritan woman at the well. You might start the story with your grandmother or a rural church camp or a dining room table surrounded by wooden chairs. But at some point, you will get to Jesus, and Jesus will change everything. So after all that background work of us kind of throwing out these ideas now, we get to the question, what is the gospel? And again, I have to ask you the question, how much time do you have? Because if you really want to know what the gospel is, it's going to take you a lifetime and then some. I could summarize it and tell you that the gospel is Jesus, and that would be an accurate statement. But then you would have to ask me to the inevitable question of, well, who is Jesus? Why did he come? What did he live for? What did he die for? Uh, what does that mean for the world, the cosmos, and even my life? And then I'd point you to the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four perspectives on one story, one gospel tradition. And that tradition has been handed down from one generation to the next four years. And in that story, we tell the story of Jesus and we invite people to enter into it, to meet a person, to fall in love with him, to walk with him for the rest of this life into the next. And then you would say, but, but then what? What prayer do I pray? How, how do I know that I'm in or saved or Christian? And, and, and then I would say, I think you're still missing the point. Not that those things are irrelevant, but, but the point is not a, de- a destination. It's not a, a transaction or an institution. The point is a person. See, the gospel, and I'll say it again and again and again, the gospel is Jesus. More specifically, as we've said, Jesus as Messiah, answering the call, the hope, the longing of the nation of Israel. And now, because he's Messiah, he has significance for my life and your life. Now, if that answer frustrates you, if the absence of a measurable transaction with an emphasis of being saved leaves you feeling as if such a narrative is missing the point, I would challenge you to examine your perspective. Since, since when was a prolonged space of simply displaying the goodness of Christ and his value and of, and of himself without any direct reference to how that saves me from my sin, since when was that not enough? Since when was ongoing transformational friendship with the Son of God somehow deficient as a purpose to live for? If Jesus is only valuable to the degree that he saves me from hell, then do I really love him? Or, or do I just love what he can do for me? And if I don't love him, then did a prayer I prayed many years ago to get heaven from him really save me? And, and if it did save me, well, then what did it save me from? And what did it save me for? Can you see how these questions, they need to rise to the surface of our minds when we think about what it means to be Christian? Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus saves. <laughs> And I am so, so grateful for that truth. In fact, in the episodes to come, we're going to talk all about that. God knows I need the saving. But the gospel, that core hinge reality that sits at the center of everything that is Christian, it is about so much more than that. Why? Because Jesus is about so much more than 
that. He himself, not a prayer I prayed in a name I barely understood for a reason that had yet to be fully redeemed in a moment many years ago. He himself is the heaven we most long for. He is the gospel. He is the good news that has broken into our reality and changed everything. And we don't have to wait for later to experience that goodness. See, my concern with, with making salvation the gospel is that, is that our emphasis doesn't become the person of Christ. Our emphasis becomes the destination of heaven. So many people, so many people uh, would consider themselves Christian and are genuinely not fascinated with Jesus because, because they were never told that that was the point. They were told that some kind of conceptual belief was their ticket to a comfy eternity and to avoid pain in eternity, right? But, but they, never, they never truly fell in love with the person of Christ. And I just think there's an absence of salvation in that. And so, with all that said, you ask me, what is the gospel? Right? And I answer you, Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. And then you respond with frustration, possibly, because I haven't given you anything tangible yet. And so you say, I, I, I don't understand. And I ask you, well, what, what is it that you don't understand? And you say, well, what about Jesus is the gospel? Is it his life? Is it his teachings? Is, is it his commandments? It is, is it his death, his resurrection, his ascension? Is it all of those things? And if it is all of those things, what does that mean? Not just for me, but for the world and not just for heaven later, but for what it means to be human now. And I look at you with a smile on my face. I open up the Bible to the book of Matthew and I say, now you're getting it. Let's begin. Do we need saving? We absolutely do. Can I summarize the gospel into four points on a tract and hand it out to unsuspecting people? Uh, I, don't, I just don't think that's helpful. And I don't believe that salvation and the gospel are synonymous terms. If you want to know what the gospel is, uh, in one word, it's Jesus. If you want more, uh, you're going to have to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then if you really want to understand that, you're going to have to live into those realities uh, for the rest of your life. And the gospel will start to dawn on you. Now, the gospel has is a good news. The good news is a person. It is He is good news walking around on two feet in the city. And there is no, uh, there is no easy way to engage with him. Right? You either are in friendship with him or you are not. And he himself is the salvation. He himself is the walking miracle. H how do we gain access? How do we enter in? Oh, now there are some beautiful truths. There's a, there are some wonderful good newses that have resulted from this good news. So because Jesus pitched up in the world, man, there are some things that are available to us now. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. But it is important, I think, before we move on to 
all the things that Jesus does for us, all the ways in which he's changed the world, all the implications and ramifications of his person, I think it's important for us to stop and realize that he himself is the good news, completely apart from what we may or may not gain from him. He himself is the good news because I genuinely believe that unless we are struck by the beauty of Jesus, unless we fall in love with this person, unless we're fascinated by his way of being and seeing and living into the world, unless we adopt some of his reality for, our, uh, for ourselves, I think we set ourselves up in opposition against what the gospel would truly do. But when that happens, when that shift in our hearts takes place, when the good news of who he is dawns on us, um, then our hearts are well positioned and open to receive everything that he's offering. So, what is the gospel? Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. And what do you do with that? <laughs> well, you, you start walking. You start walking in the direction of him. You take the journey and you see how it unfolds. There really is no other way. There really is no other way. And next week, we're going to start looking at the other good news. Um, because having, having been struck by him, having been amazed by him, when he says, come and see, come and follow me, and then we do, we find that there's a whole bunch of things that have taken place. Uh, we find that there is, uh, there's some dancing at a funeral. We find that everybody is invited to that party. We find that there's a new reality that we can begin to choose to live into. There are so many good newses that flow out of the good news, who is Jesus himself. And um, I'm excited to look at them. But this week, my challenge to you would be to try and um, see Jesus for who he is, not for what he can do. Uh, not for how you gain or benefit, but just him himself. Let, let him be the gospel. Let him be the good news that opens your eyes to all kinds of other good news that's um, immediately available to you in the world. <laughs>